Joanne's store is maybe known for its fabrics and crafts, but it's recently gained attention for its contribution to DIY personal protective equipment during the pandemic. Face masks were in great demand, and the company saw an opportunity to help people get the fabrics they needed to stay safe. On this episode of the Workday Podcast, Janet Deliga, Chief Administrative Officer at Joanne Stores, joins us to talk about how they quickly responded to the crisis. I'm your host, Gadir Redler. Thanks for being here today with us, Janet. Before we get started, can you please tell us a little bit about your background and role at Joanne? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you very much for having me and for including Joanne in your podcast. I started at Joanne about four years ago. I am a lawyer and an HR professional. And more recently, I received a doctorate in organizational learning. And so I have this really great opportunity to work in all those spaces in my role And I love Joanne because I'm a crafter and a sewer, and so I really connect with our customers and also get a a great opportunity to work with team members and keep them connected to Joanne. Wow, that's awesome. That's a very impressive background. So you've been on an incredible journey these last few months since the pandemic, and Joanne Stores quickly shifted its business model to help fill the need for DIY personal protective equipment. So how were you guys able to make this pivot? Yeah, I think... The first step was our CEO, our leader, Wade, really was connected with the medical community and the healthcare community and saw maybe a little bit further ahead than than some others were seeing that there was going to be some issues. There was going to be a scarcity of PPE or personal protective equipment for healthcare workers and potentially for those kind of more peripheral, but also engaged with the public and things like that. That really activated him and energized him to think about how can Joanne help in this crisis. And Joanne is the biggest fabric retailer at that consumer level in the entire country. And so one of the things that you can do if you don't have the N95 type of mask is to go to some alternate face covering. And an alternate face covering is two layers of cotton, two layers of denim, two layers of tightly woven cotton-like fabric, something like that has been uh, considered. And then we actually got into testing some of that along the way. But really the point is that he saw there was a gap in the supply chain to people and decided we were going to do something about it. And so our company got uniquely and laser focused on how we could be helpful. One of the things was to keep our stores open to allow all that incredible network of people who make things and sew things to have access to fabric so that they could make masks. Because out of the woodwork, people started posting things online like, hey, you can make some masks if you need to. And those were things that would be used like at a rehab center where maybe they're not a hospital location, but they're interacting with patients that need help and a senior citizen center, the sheriff's department. So we had a lot of possible people, possible customers or people that our customers cared about needed masks and we were figuring out how could we help. So that was kind of the starting point to just see that there was a need, that we had a unique position to help. Prong one was let's let's make sure we're giving fabric to people who want to make masks. So we initially started with these adorable kits that we put in bags with elastic and it was just kind of this neat little gift. And then quickly that became, let's just hand some fabric to people because we were inundated. 
And so it wasn't quite as a gorgeous presentation, but it was what people needed and wanted. And we ran out of elastic. So we were trying to figure out all different alternatives to elastic. And then we would suggest those and people would come to us with ideas. We tried out and tested every pattern so that when we posted something, it was a pattern that we knew worked. We you know, gave credit where we could give credit to people who came up with these patterns. We started uh, on the other side working with testing some of this because we Now we're in a different place in the pandemic, but at that time, we were being told that we were going to be short 3 billion PPE units for healthcare workers. And when you think about that, it's like, well, maybe they're going to have to start wearing fabric masks. What would that look like? So there were healthcare scientists and other scientists involved in testing the fabrics that were possible candidates to be part of this next wave of masks. And in the meantime, there's factories making, you know, starting to figure out how they're going to convert over to make masks. And we were connecting with them so that we could also sell masks eventually. But the the primary thing was this DIY approach. We also made some partnerships, which was another prong. So one of the ones that's maybe a little more well-known and people would recognize the name of Neiman Marcus, they have, I think, the largest alterations and tailoring group of all the department stores or chain stores in the United States. And some of the people from our team connected up so that we could activate them to making scrubs because scrubs were also in short supply. And again, we had lots and lots of fabric. So that was one. There are a couple other places where we would donate fabric or sell fabric at cost just so that people could make the needed items. So there were different elements. There were charitable things. There were you know things where we were just selling things at cost because we could supply them. And then, of course, we're selling things for a profit as well. So I don't want to say that we didn't do any of that. But the focus was really in enabling that customer base that we have that loves to make, to give in anything. Wow, they were excited about making masks. And people are still making tons of masks. And if you went to one of our stores, you would be at the cut counter behind someone who is you know, buying four, four yards of cotton. And they were going to make you know, 100 masks out of that at least. And I'm very excited to contribute. That's amazing. And because of your ability to quickly pivot and fill this need, you've also been able to keep 95% of your stores open. How did you change your store operating models to keep both customers and employees safe? Our goal was to keep our team members safe and to support the makers out there when the sewists who wanted to, to get their hands on some fabric. So to be safe, we would look at the guidelines of the CDC and the state and get the supplies out to the stores, talk to the stores and train the stores about we can't open unless we can fulfill the safety requirements of the state or that we're recommending as a company or the CDC. So we did have like our own standard, but then if the state had like a maybe a higher standard or a specialized standard, like how many people per store or something like that, we, we would follow that as well. But our goal was to keep our stores open so that people would have access to that fabric that they wanted and all the, the notions that go along with it. Some states shut down completely and then would allow for essential businesses to stay open. And where we felt that we were able to keep our store open safely with social distancing and cleaning guidelines, when we were able to open up a store because we were able to follow our own guidelines and the guidelines of the state, we would, there were times when customers would come to us and beg us to open so that they could get something and we weren't really allowed to because the state was saying, you know, you can't have your store open. We would figure out ways for, you know, a store manager who had to be in there to conduct business anyway, like make sure payroll was 
going, they might have been able to get a bolt of fabric out here and there. And then we were just trying to meet the need and we would give masks to, we would accept donations of masks so that we could give them back out to the community. And we do have a wonderful series of pictures of all kinds of groups who are just, you know, from the hospital to first responders and things like that, just being able to feel safe while they're doing their work because they weren't supposed to be using the N95s and other healthcare medical grade masks and PPE. So it was really about following the protocols that would keep our team members safe. And we felt that if we were able to do that, we were also keeping the customers safe because we're following the same you know, cleaning and et cetera protocols. And sometimes we would have someone who would come in as a customer and then after they have checked out would say, hey, by the way, um, I'm getting all this stuff because I'm going to be home for the next two weeks quarantining because, you know, my spouse has COVID. So then we would have to shut down the store, do a full deep clean, tell everybody. And then, you know, we'd kind of sort ourselves out and get back on the horse. We've had a very low amount of people. I, I mean, I don't even know that I can speak quantitatively how many people you know that work for us have have had covid but especially in those early days it was pretty small with like our customers were really the the place where we were hearing about it and we did have to shut down stores for a couple of weeks just because that's what the state told us to do but our legal department was extremely active with our operations department to work with all state officials at every level and one of the challenges was that the top state officials would say yes you guys are essential and you can stay open during this period of time but local officials uh, were not on board and they would come in and shut us down and cite us and uh, at times be, you know, wasn't as friendly as it could have been. And then other times we actually received apologies later or just kind of some, you know, negotiation and we worked it out. So, I mean, it, it's been uh, a really interesting thing. And so we, we have three ways that we were supporting people. One, a fully open store with safety protocols. Two would be a curbside type of approach where people would tell us what they wanted online, and then we would put their stuff together in a bag and deliver it to their car. And then the third was just, we would have ship from store operating within a store. So the store team would work on online orders, but no customers and no contact with the customers at the curbside. And that was new for us. And it just created all kinds of different things upstream in terms of supply chain related questions and our normal shipping schedules and things like that. So those safety precautions paired with your company's flexibility allow you to continue to serve customers as well as hire new employees. How are you managing the hiring and onboarding process during this time? Yeah, it's a really great question. It's super tricky and it's different. So in addition to learning a new job, you would also have to learn a new job with safety protocols that are not exactly most people's first instinct is to stand six feet apart from other people. It's just not kind of normal for conversation and, or at least typical. And it's certainly not normal when you're training someone because you're like right up with each other, you know, working on a handheld device or showing a phone or like leaning over someone. So those are the kinds of things we really had to be thoughtful and careful about. But in terms of hiring, we tried to have an expedited hiring process because we just needed more hands. And then I, I think what we were more proud of, I think, than anything else is that we were able to keep our people employed, our business going for the long haul because we were able to, to really buckle down and get these protocols in place. And the people who sourced our hand sanitizer, you know, God bless them, because if we didn't have hand sanitizer, then we'd have to figure out the next solution to that. And if you didn't have wipes, you have to figure out the next solution to that. And you know, you know, you know, from everyone knows from personal experience, those things disappeared. So 
a lot of this was just complete hustle. And I think our story, though, of helping in a time of crisis is appealing to people who want to be helpful. So they did want to work with us and work for us. That's great. So your workforce is obviously working during unprecedented times, which can be challenging. How are you currently managing employee engagement to keep up morale and culture? Well, we did initiate a $2 premium for our frontline sales associates, team members, we call them, to, you know, an acknowledgement that this, they're facing something different, their job is different, and we want them to know, you know, that we appreciate them. Our distribution center workers also have that same premium, and some other workers who were just like, were in that essential force that could not work remotely. So that was one thing. Our communications team led by Amanda really kept the communication going in different ways. So one, just information about the pandemic, information about what we are doing to help our world with PPE during the pandemic. So just kind of like the rallying cry, like we're doing something important right now, so let's keep going. And communication from our CEO on a weekly basis, just kind of like, what's unfolding right now in the world of Joanne, in the world of business, in the marketplace, in the whatever was quite topical in that moment, and just appreciation. Um, and then communication, another thing that Amanda put together was about uh, the good things that we're seeing and the positive things. So that was pictures of how we were able to help a, a community or team members following the protocols, but just kind of having a good time with it, and uh, which sounds weird, but is true. And I think, you know, we just kept communicating uh, out and receiving communication in. We have an email where people could write in and we just kind of thought if we can stay open to listen, but also keep pushing forward. I mean, sometimes when you have a vision on something, you just have to keep talking about it and it, you know, to, to get it to that place where it's a reality. And I think that's that's what we were thinking and that's how we we handled it. Engagement was really about this value of Joanne can do something right now. And when people are scared, it's really helpful to have something to do. Something that we noticed also was when a store would be closed because the state closed it, but we believed we should be considered essential to open it because of the material that we were providing for PPE, we did have to engage in a dialogue with our employees who were resistant to reopening the store at times. And one of the things that really changed the conversation was the cry from the community and our customers that they needed us to be open so that they could do the thing that they do the best, which is making to give and making to support their community. And so when our store managers or store team members would receive a thank you note or a picture that showed how important what they were doing was to the rest of the world during this completely new experience of a pandemic, that really changed, I think, some hearts about what they really were doing. They're not just selling stuff for, you know, for money. They're providing um, a needed a needed good at a needed time to people in need. And that really made a huge difference to our mindset and it just built momentum. Yeah, that's awesome. And so I'm sure some of these changes that you've made are going to stick, especially since retail industry is probably going to look different for a while still, and nobody really knows how long it's going to last. How do you see Joanne stores operating over the next six to 12 months? 
I think we have our eye on the pandemic. What's happening? Are there hot spots? Is it resurging, et cetera? So one thing that we talk about is let's be ready to either activate more stringent protocols, like in some places where stores are open and they don't have to count and they don't maybe have some of the rigid spacing rules and things like that. Like we still want to follow social distancing and we are allowing our people to wear masks where they want, but we're not requiring it if their state doesn't. But in a state that does require retail people to wear masks, we're requiring it. But I think we're just going to keep our eye on what's happening and be really nimble. And that is uh, a lot of communication at the top of the organization so that we're reporting in and then cascading out, reporting in and cascading out so that we stay pretty tight, even though we're a humongous group of people. So that's one thing that we, you know, continue to keep in mind. So we talked a lot about your retail stores and all the precautions that you've been taking to keep them open and serving customers. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your corporate office. How are you preparing for the return to work for your corporate employees? It was kind of interesting. It was like an exodus. Like we were going to do a practice run of remote. And I think a lot of people have this experience. I'm sure people in the audience are like, yes, that was us, where you were like, oh, there's a pandemic coming. We should try to see if we can all be remote for a day. And then like the next day, it's like, bye, go home and work from home. So we uh, we did that. And, uh, and then in the meantime, kind of looked at the facility itself. We thought about what people think and feel and started communicating, created a group, a task force of people from all parts of the building and all the departments so that everyone would have a voice and let that group be part of the discovery process of what would make sense for us to come back? When should we start thinking about it? How would that look? So we do have like a checkerboard approach where we have cubes. So, you know, you're a red or a white cube or you're a this or a that. So some, some things like that. So it's a little bit about the schedule and that's kind of handled by each department and you have to determine who needs to work together and how do you space them out while they are there and who doesn't need to work together? Are there some people who are just perfectly like excellent remote because they're very individual in their contributions and they just be on the phone all day at their desk anyway, or people who are, you know, need to be in and out of collaborative space. So we're just trying to be thoughtful about it. And we're doing all of the safety protocols of, you know, maybe some one-way aisles and things like that. We're putting up on cubes, like screens of different types. Some are like a little curtain and others are a, I guess maybe it's called a sneeze guard or something. And uh, that sounds gross, but that's just a plexi. What we're trying to do is give people as much sense of security in their own space. The big question is the masks, like who and when and where. There was a lot of discussion on it. And now we've kind of a few, I would say not quite a tenth of the organization has been practicing spending their whole day with masks. So we brought the organization or bringing it back top down. So leaders, top leaders come in first, next level leaders next, and kind of like that paced out every couple of weeks so that there's a group of people providing feedback, experiencing it, living it, communicating it. And we felt like people would be less scared if they were higher up in the organization to say things. I mean, that's not 100% true, but there's an interesting informal network of information that is clearly in place. And it's awesome if you can tap into it and you have people who are trusted, people who can then speak up for those who feel scared or nervous or, you know, angry. Yeah. That sounds like a great plan. It's the one we have and I feel (laughs) good about it. Um, We're all learning. And I think I keep forgetting, you know, at some point we'll have a vaccine. And I think a lot of people are like, that's the the end date. But I just Mm -hmm. keep thinking about like, what about, you know, the next few weeks and, you know, how do we, how do we move through these, these short-term spaces as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and no one knows how quickly a vaccine is going to come. So we have to figure out life in the meantime until that happens. Yeah. Now let's shift gears a bit to talk about what Joanne's Stores has been doing for the community. What are some ways that Joanne's Stores is giving back during this time? Joanne does have a long history of giving and especially giving to the connected community, to some of the things that are more core to us. And we do believe that creativity is for everyone and and there should be no barriers there. We have supported kids in need. We've supported St. Jude's. We've, during COVID, there are several hospital and healthcare groups that we've given to. We're standing up something related to schools. So creating, you know, an opportunity for masks for schools. We've given donated, you know, goods, fabric and, and related uh, notions to create 12 million masks. So I think that's kind of, you know, where we were with COVID, just really trying to be there. And honestly, I think a very extremely powerful experience is to take those, you know, two half yards of fabric to hand to somebody so that they can make 15 masks. And when they come back the next day for the, the next round, And so there's this like grassroots part of it. And then there's this kind of more institutional component of it. But that was a a big piece of us feeling great about what we were able to do during this time. Wow. It's great to hear how much you've been able to give back, especially during the pandemic. Uh, Before we wrap up, I'd like to get your closing thoughts. What advice would you give to retail leaders who are looking to evolve their business models to meet changing needs and the next normal? I think something that's incredibly important is creating places to listen to what's going on, but it, it it has to be where people will actually want to talk. So that's one thing. I mean, there is a lot of fear that occurred because it was a pandemic with this unknown virus. We We don't know everything about it. We don't have a vaccine for it. We're not sure about a lot of the elements of, you know, contagion and, healing and things like that. So people are are fearful. And so you have to kind of start from there, I think, because we're in a people business, retail is a people business, and we are spread out all over the country. People are living different experiences. So I think it has a ton to do with that. And I think that's could be cliche, but if you mean it, people will talk to you and then you have to listen and, and, and act on it. Uh, an example is just, you know, corporate headquarters. Um, we're making decisions about who comes back into the corporate headquarters. And I think that's a smaller part of our company, but it's important to the people who work there to feel safe. So what does that mean? And you can follow the science, but you also have to follow the perceptions and the feelings of trust that people have about the people around them. A lot of problems can be solved by analysis and data. And I think one piece of data is, you know, what do people say they're experiencing? Well, this has been a great conversation. I'd like to thank my guest, Janet, for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more of the Workday podcast, please subscribe.